Okay, so police allowed um, local news outfits CDN and the Freeman inside, no, the PRO7, but they refused to allow Rappler to enter the vicinity, calling us a fake news media outfit. This is the voice of my colleague, Lorena Karma, one of Rappler's correspondents in Cebu. On Friday, May 14, she is about to cover the release of Lumads and their volunteer teachers, who were arrested about three months before. But after other journalists were allowed into the camp of the Central Visayas police, she is stopped at the gate. This is the first time that it happens to our colleagues in Cebu. While they have been used to aggression from officials who don't relish Rappler's critical reporting, they have not been prevented from any coverage. As I speak with my Cebu-based colleagues, I learn this is only the start of this disturbing story. Hello, I'm Rambo Talabong. This is Rappler's Crime Podcast, Criminal. In this podcast, we revisit crime stories that are significant in understanding Philippine politics and society. This is our 22nd episode, where we will talk about the Cebu police's history of hostility against journalists, whom they perceive to be reporting on them critically. For this episode, I interview Ryan Macasero, who supervises Rappler Cebu Bureau, and Lorraine Ekarma, our correspondent who was blocked from entering the Cebu Regional Police Office camp. Ryan Macasero and Lorraine Karma, welcome to the program. Hello. Okay. Hi, Rambo. Hello. Let's start with you, Lorraine. What happened on Friday? Tell us the story of what happened. So, the National Union of People's Lawyers at around 8 a.m. just posted no, their statement and news of the Davao del Norte provincial prosecutor finally clearing the complaints filed against Bakwit 7 or 7 Luma delegates who were arrested in a raid in the University of San Carlos, Cebu, back in February. So after three months of detention, they were finally going to be allowed to be released. And at around 9 a.m. that morning, they gave us a media alert no, na they were going to be waiting outside until Bakwit 7 was released. And so we went there and we thought it was going to be breezy and smooth because we found out that the release order had been signed on back in May 5. So it was over a week at that point. But police claim that they have just heard of this development now. So they were validating the release order and talking with the fiscal. Then Nuna, we were going to wait you know, for a long period of time before they were finally released. So about an hour in of waiting, hour, almost two hours in of waiting, non-uniformed personnel I remember specifically he was dressed in green and one was dressed in red. And we didn't know at that point if they were cops or if they were just one of the workers inside, no, but they barged out, barged out of the gate that we were waiting at, at that wing of the police regional office. And they were quite aggressively directing students and activists to stop filming. They invoked their right to privacy saying we were putting their safety, the safety of policemen in danger by filming them. I tweeted a video of this. One even approached me that non-uniformed personnel 
earlier shoved a student no, to move aside to clear the way and to stop filming. And he approached me and I, I asserted that I was media. I was rapper. At that point, other local media reporters have not arrived at the police regional office yet. And he was saying, I, it doesn't matter if you're media. Uh, he shoved me. It wasn't that hard, but he shoved me to push me to the direction he wanted me to. And he also touched my camera no, and directed me to put my camera away. I mean, my phone. And then they left. But like 30 minutes later at around 11 a.m., at this point, local media has caught up and there, we were gathered na at the gate where the Bakut 7 were expected to be released. But I noticed one of the photographers was missing. So I asked around where he was because I also took note of how aggressive the police was when they earlier approached us. So I was asking where he was. And then I found out he was allowed inside. So I got excited Now, oh, maybe we're finally going to get access now. So I think there's a video from SOS Network of this. At this point, some local media gave up and... No, I think they were called into another press conference and they said they will be coming back. And it was just me and one other local news media reporter. I knocked on the gate, asked them, oh, you allowed Sir Blah Blah inside, so maybe you can allow us inside, we're media. And so they closed the gate, conferred, and then opened the gate again. They asked, kauban mo, kauban mo ni Sir, name of the reporter who was allowed inside. And I said, yes, because we're media. So they asked us to show them our IDs. So we did. They first saw my fellow reporter's ID, allowed her inside. And then when I presented mine, they hesitated and they were like, Rappler. And then th that's when it started to escalate. No, What I didn't capture in my video no, was them saying, they accused me of lying, na I was associated with the, with the reporters that were inside. And they said, I don't know if it was a joke or if it was a threat, but I took it as a threat. So they were like, we will arrest you. You're lying. So at that point, there was no way I was not documenting it just for proof no, of the, their treatment of me. So I started filming and I got in one of the last jeers no, thrown my way. Rappler isn't media. Rappler fake news. And because I was... I already took note of how aggressive they were before I decided not to press further, just to wait outside and post the video of them not allowing me entry. Because I wasn't just bringing my name, I was bringing the name of my company. Whatever altercation happens would just not be on me. I was just waiting with human rights groups outside, hoping that the process would be expedited. No, But around 12 noon, other local media out let personnel were entering. Nano. At that point, I was getting food and they called me up and said, they're in. They, they allowed us inside. Uh, they allowed them inside and they were negotiating with police to allow me inside as well. But again, non-uniformed personnel said they don't have authority to let me in. And so they decided just to take the interview outside with the NUPL lawyer, King Anthony Perez. So I was able to get my interview and I'm very grateful about that for my colleagues in local media and they left soon after so it was just me again and the photographer that was allowed inside earlier because he was in he didn't leave at around 12 50 at that point my tweet or the rappler's tweet about me not being given entry ha was gaining attention 
that point, I knew it was going to be a story. So I texted Captain Rios, the PIO chief of the regional office, for a comment. And I asked for an explanation why I wasn't let in, in particular, while other media outlets were let in. And then asked for an explanation on why police were allowed to call Rappler names such as fake news media and etc. She said it was just a misunderstanding that it was just lack of communication and instructed me to tell the people at the gate to approach a certain Captain Grande. And so I did that. They allowed me in. And when I was allowed inside, I met with Captain Grande, who was not in uniform. And so I asked him if I could interview him for a while on how the release was going and also on his comment and statement about what happened earlier with Rappler. He refused to comment. And upon entering, no, they were already telling me to not film, to put my camera down, to stop taking pictures. Because when I was allowed entry, I wanted to take a video of me finally entering so, because, so as to update the people who were following the story. But they didn't allow me to do that. When I was, they were watching me. And so I just decided to take a seat with the lawyers. No? And it was good. We had small talk with the police. They even offered me coffee and food. And they were asking me questions of where, where I graduated. They were asking me questions about the Rappler Cebu Bureau, how many we were. And then things escalated again when they finally told us that Chad was getting released. When they let him out of the detention cell, I jumped from my seat and tried to take photos of Chad, no? Lorraine, could you, you just remind our listeners who Chad is? Chad Book is one of the Bakwit Seven. He's a LUMAD volunteer teacher, and he's also a petitioner against the anti-terror law. Na. And he's a very prominent figure on social media because he updates through his social media what is going on in LUMAD communities. And he's a graduate from UP Dilaman. Mm-hmm. And I have also known him from volunteering previously in LUMAD Bakwit schools in Cebu. You get word of him being released, and then what happens next? I approach Chad, and because I jumped out of my seat, it's been a long day of being under the sun and we just wanted the story to be over. Like we just wanted to get the details. We just wanted them to be released. Police got mad because they pointed out I was too excited. Or I was more excited than Chad's lawyers that he was getting released. And they said, no excited ka-mam? Or why are you so excited? Your friends, right? Or your comrades, right? And that was when they started watching me like a hawk. While the other photographer was allowed to take pictures of Chad. They were yelling at me. These men twice my size were yelling at me at every slight movement of my phone. I was just carrying a phone at that time. They told me not to take pictures of them because I was jeopardizing their safety. I was putting them at risk. They told me not to get overly excited. They told me that I will be getting my story once Chad has been released, but outside. I can take pictures of Chad being released outside of the gate. So basically, getting in there had no use to me because I wasn't allowed to film anything. And the cop or the non-uniformed personnel earlier in green that shoved me and other, another activist came out and he was the one who was very, he was quite aggressive, more aggressive than the others. There was a lot of yelling and I noticed one of them who I was making small talk with earlier filming me. And so I asked, 
sir, why are you filming me and why am I not allowed to film you? He was, he was saying, you're in our office and this is protocol. It is our right to take... Yeah, I remember him, did, I remember him saying this. It is our right to take photos of you and to take videos of you. This is our protocol in our office. But he didn't really answer what it was for. And I was too scared at that point to press on. I remember at around 1.30, I was already sending frantic messages to Desk Nona. I'm scared. They were telling me to pull out. But I wanted the footage of Chad being released. At that point, I wasn't out of the station yet. But a non-uniformed personnel, again, in all black, who was the most aggressive with me, before he exited, he said, Ah, or I'm not sure if it was the man in black because they were, they were all not, not in uniform. They were all in plain clothes. And they were, it was synchronously sila nag-uusap or yelling at me. And it wasn't just that statement that red tagged me, but it was the only one I can remember verbatim. But yeah, all throughout that, they were insinuating that Chad and I were part of a rebel group. And every time Chad would talk to me, they would jeer at us. I decided to leave and I was waiting outside, but Desk was already telling me to pull out if I didn't feel safe and I didn't feel comfortable. And every time police, I mean, non-uniformed personnel were going in and out of the gate, it sort of, sort of triggered me at that point. So I decided to just pull out and meet one of my fellow correspondents, uh, Rappler here in Cebu, John, and find a safe space to continue monitoring the story online. And so that was the end of it. I did receive replies. Finally, after uh, months of covering this story, no, I've only received about two replies from the police. One was when activists were looking for the whereabouts of another volunteer teacher, teacher Rochelle Porcadilla. Police just replied, no, a single sentence saying she was in her cell to me. And the rest was silent. But now that this happened, they replied to me their statement no, on the release of the Lumads and etc. So it was, they were just finally um, acknowledging me at that time, you know, when all that went down. And so far, that's it lang. They were finally released at 6 p.m. I just had to call up SOS Network, Save Our Schools Network, one of the conveners of the Bakwit schools, and student activists and human rights group members that I knew of to be able to get updates no, on how the release was going. So, yeah. Brave of you, Lorraine, to do that. And we really appreciate your work. And what the police really did is completely shocking, even for me, who has covered the police work for the past four years. And an assertion that they wanted to ask you about, Lorraine, is they're saying that it's a result of miscommunication. But from what I'm uh-huh. seeing, they're not replying to you. And it's uh-huh. pretty clear, too, that they're aggressive to you. It's clear yeah. their communication that they don't want to let you in. So is it uh-huh. true that there's a lack of communication as what they told you? Well, I don't really get the point of miscommunication no? because why did other media personnel get in without having to inform the PIO of their presence there? And why was I excluded specifically? Why did they narrow in on me? And why did they call me names? No, Why did their exclusion of me come with the reason that I was a fake news media? I was from fake news media. I'm still worried about that, no? about believing miscommunication because I don't believe 
media personnel covering the police beat in Cebu have to all the time tell police or inform the public information office that they will be around or that they will be covering certain events. It's the first time I've heard of that. Mm-hmm. And who are the officials who are involved here? Who's the, the regional director of PRO7, Police Regional Office 7? And has he replied to you? Has he given you his comment? The regional chief is police Brigadier General Ronnie Montejo, no? And he only commented on his statement. Oh, he only gave, gave me his statement on the actual release of the Bakuit 7. But as far as what happened to me was concerned, um, he hasn't commented on that or he hasn't released a statement of that. But Captain Rios, no, of, of the PIO again, of the regional office, she was the one who told me that it was just a matter of miscommunication, that they were going to iron it out. And that they, she was the one who found a way to let me in, basically, as this was happening. But it's also important to note that before I called her up or before I texted her, national media already contacted her of what was going on, of the developments. Before this, she was also among the sources that um, wasn't able to reply to me whenever I would chat or call about statements on developments of the story on the Lumad 7, no? of the Luma delegates. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think almost everything points against their claim that it's a matter of miscommunication because you've been reaching out to them for the past few months. Mm-hmm. You're listening to the 22nd episode of Criminal, Rabbler's Crime Podcast. How is it so far? If you want to listen to other cool and informative audio, check out other Rabbler podcasts on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. This crime podcast wouldn't have been possible without the support of listeners. You can support Rappler by joining our community called Rappler Plus. Rappler Plus believes in speaking truth to power, using technology for the greater good, to power communities to action. Go to rappler.com plus for more details. The next question that I'm going to ask, and I think this is also for Ryan, or this might be answered by Ryan, because... I've also talked to him about this before in this same podcast. And it's astonishing to me that this story really grew from when we talked about the Bakwin 7, Lorraine. And then it uh-huh. became a story about us. We were entangled with the story because of the police harassing us, harassing you. About the story of us being harassed in Cebu. Is this the first time that this happened? Uh, ha- have they done this before with other journalists in Cebu, other reporters in Cebu, especially in our bureau? Yeah, like I mean, we mentioned before, or I mentioned before in your previous podcast, I also had a little run-in with the former Central Visayas chief and now retired PNP chief Debold Sinas when he was uh, Sinas when he was the chief of the region in Cebu. And I remember the first press conference I went to, he said, or when I was introduced to him, "Oh, Rappler's here. Uh, I don't like Rappler in front of all of the other reporters, but." I kind of brushed it off as a joke. And so I just continued to talk to him and do what I was doing. But uh, I remember it very clearly because I had covered the regional police before that. And we've always had a professional working relationship with them. So in 2019, I think that's when things started to change. But they did not go as far as not allowing me to cover. I was still invited For the first couple of months, I was included in the group chat and was able to contact them, even though I knew it was kind of, uh, they did not 
like my presence and they were way I knew I, I already had a feeling they were wary of us being there but it did not go as far as what happened to Lorraine of not being allowed inside the compound and I think over the course of our coverage they saw that they could not control the way that we covered they, they could not tell us how we could ask questions and uh, even our our last podcast I heard from uh, reliable sources that they were not too happy about what we had to say about the former police chief and so I think our the way that we've covered uh, contributed to what happened, uh, what we saw happen to Lorraine last Friday. It, it just so happened that we've been covering mostly at home from the pandemic. Because of the pandemic, so it's mostly through phone calls, it's mostly through hearing what they have to say through other sources. And then so because Lorraine showed up, what I guess how they felt came to light because she was there. And there were people who had witnessed it. So I was not too surprised. But at the same time, I was appalled by how overt it was and how public it was. Because I don't think any of us want to be the story uh, when we're covering the stories. But because they shouted out here in front of so many witnesses that we didn't have a choice anymore but to report they're being excluded from the coverage. If it happened to other reporters, I'm not sure. Because I think the culture of... Local media there is to handle, if there are, are disagreements or conflicts, are to handle it discreetly and behind the scenes. There was another incident a couple months back, or, or a year ago actually, where the local, uh, someone did not like my coverage. They tagged a whole bunch of police officers in one of my articles. And there were, ver- uh, we verified that, that people in the comments threatening to sue me were actual police officers. And we were able to handle that by talking directly to the leadership. And it did not become a a public, you know, display of something like this. So, yeah, it has happened, but it hasn't happened so overtly and so publicly like what happened to Lorraine last weekend. So clearly this is not an isolated incident. And this is part of a broader narrative, a bigger narrative of the government harassing journalists, especially us at Crapto. And actually, from what I saw with what they did to Lorraine, parang ano eh, na bumalik ako sa nangyari din kay Piera Nadar, Malacanang reporter, when she was barred from Malacanang. I'm, I'm also interested, Lorraine, um, are there any other incidents before this? Kasi parang ang laking talon eh, as, as Ryan mentioned, it's such a big jump from something that's pretty much medyo sinusubukan pa nila maging suwabe, na parang hindi sumasagot, but then biglang ito, it's so explicit, sinasabihan kayo in your face that we believe that you're fake news, and they're suggesting that you're part of uh, armed groups that the government is uh, red-tagging. Meron pa bang ibang incidents that led up to this? Apart from them intimidating, trying to intimidate Ryan online, because in the comment section, there it was also very... They were very explicit also in calling Rappler and Ryan fake news media. So apart from that, personally, I haven't experienced anything from the police. And I don't cover the police beat that often, but I have a lot of friends in the police beat. And so far, they've maintained very good relations with police. Actually, police have been very respectful towards my friends in the police beat. So I didn't really expect anything like this to happen in person as well. They've always maintained friendly relations with local media and they've been also very supportive no, of the endeavors of this organization of local media personnel in Cebu. So 
I did not anticipate that treatment because it's been so peaceful between police and other local media outlets in Cebu. Mm-hmm. My next question. Can I? Is, yeah, you can. You can. You can. You can go right. Yeah, I just wanted to add there that you know I've heard you know I've been called fake news to my face before, and for me, I just brush it off and and focus on getting the information that I need as long as they don't stop me from getting the stories and getting the comments that I need in order to complete you know the details and the and to have a complete narrative of the story that I'm pursuing. I kind of just you know let it go, but. To that, in with the action of being excluded, I think is what bothered me. You can dislike us, but you cannot stop us from doing our job. That is where I think I would draw the line, and I think that line was for me. It was crossed in this instance. Exactly, exactly, Ryan. And um, my next question is actually related to that. How does this affect your audience, your your coverage, your jobs? How does this affect you after what this happened? Because obviously. After this happened to Lorraine, it's not just a story that's limited to Lorraine. It's a story about Philippine journalism at this point. It's a it sets a chilling precedent. It causes chilling effect for everybody because we're seeing something so overt, as you mentioned, Ryan, so explicit done to reporters in in places that we should cover. How does this affect your manner of telling your story? How does this affect your job? Any of you can uh, I'll just answer quickly. I think in the Past couple of months, uh, you, the our team has had a really difficult time getting the side of police in any stories that involve crime or police issues, and it's kind of it's disappointing because it's not. I don't know. Like we always try to assume good faith from you know the police, our our personal opinions, our feelings about it. We always try to put that aside. And engage the police because it is, um, you know, and it is an important state agency in terms of the security of the communities that we cover. So we try to call them and get their side, and to not, and it's not just to confirm, you know, incidents that happened or not, but to ask for explanations of why things happen. And so what we assume good faith of them, and we would like that same benefit that we are also acting in good faith. And for them to not give that to us by calling us fake news is very disappointing. But I would like to be more on the more optimistic side that when they say that it was a miscommunication, I well, if it was a miscommunication, then hopefully you can show that it was it was a miscommunication by engaging us moving forward. Uh, I think actions speak louder than words. I hope that when we do call in the future, that we can be talked to properly, that we can be treated as any other media organization operating that is covering the news, because that is our function is to bring the most, the best information and the best, and to get to the best truths that we can for our audience and for our readers. And so it, it has made it difficult, but I think it doesn't have to be. And that, you know, we can move forward from this. I hope I'm more, and I'm optimistic that it's possible, especially with this new PNP chief, Guillermo Eliasar. I'm hoping that more professionalism can be in and a better working relationship in the media can be instilled at the regional level. Thank you for that, uh, Lorraine. For me as well, for our audience, I hope this contextualizes, no? our previous articles and why we have not been able to get statement from police, even though we have called them multiple times. Although we've stated in our previous articles that we've released on, not only on the LUMAD issue, no, but LUMAD issue, but 
on human rights issues and police issues in general. I hope this gives them a glimpse of what goes on and why we have been unable to get a statement from the police. But I also hope that we will be able to gain their trust more because despite of what happened, we continued on with the story. We pursued the story. We were able to get information on the release of Chad Book despite intimidation from police. And we also pushed forward what happened no, to me that day. I hope this gives them context or this put things into perspective as to our relationship with the police as a source. And I hope this gives them a clearer perspective as to how police sees us. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like Ryan, I'm optimistic that especially with the story being out there and new leadership from the police, no? And police head seeing how we're treated on ground, I, I'm optimistic that this will change and that they will be more responsive and more accessible to us, especially at the Cebu Bureau, because they've always been responsive with other media outlets here. And I hope it doesn't happen again to other critical media personnel, other critical media outlets. Mm-hmm. And Lorraine, indulge me. This, uh, this is a question that um, I've been dying to ask you as well. Ever since you told me the story earlier, this is just a question that I've been keeping. How did you decide and why did you decide to stay? Because if it's dangerous and if you feel it's dangerous, you should pull out. But I'm seeing here that you decide to stay, you decide to continue on telling the story. And kahit na umalis ka, you're still monitoring the story, you're still telling the story. What's the thought process there and why did you do so? Honestly, because it was a Friday and I knew that if the release was going to happen, I was not going to happen on that day that the Bakwit 7 and their lawyers would have to wait until Monday. So an entire weekend of them being detained, like an additional two days of them being detained so that they'd be released. So I really wanted to see if they would be released that day. And I also wanted, because if they could easily do that to me, no, what goes on when I'm not around, when media is not around? So I want to bear witness to anything that might come up during the release process. And there have been a history, Mangod, of delaying releases in Cebu, especially with Cebu 8, a group of protesters no, in Cebu who were arrested for protesting against the anti-terror bill at that time. So, yeah, I just wanted to make sure that there was someone documenting anything that might come up during the release process. As I kept on telling Ryan and telling the desk, I just wanted to get footage. I just wanted to see them out that day. So to watch the story unfold and to bear the responsibility of actually bearing witness and seeing it unfold before our eyes. Mm. Because I'm going to discuss because at this point, we really have the responsibility and the duty to watch over what the government is doing But we have to keep on telling this, as you guys have exhibited. And for our readers, our listeners, we really do appreciate our Cebu Bureau because they're, they're the previous journalists in our newsroom, I believe, because they, they encounter this so frequently. And I want to ask you both this. Um, why does it matter that we keep on telling stories despite the hostility? For me, I think because we can't rely on, we can't assume that others are going to pursue stories in the same way. In doing journalism for the public interest. And what I mean by that is um, public interest in terms of knowing 
what is the public interest? It's their safety and security. What, uh, what is the situation on, you know, their welfare, on, on the economy, on everything that is of the interest to our audience. And I think because we have, we're guided by public interest in everything that we do, that we have to keep pursuing stories with them in mind, with the people in mind, and hopefully, you know, show others that, you know, we're here not to create unnecessary issues, not to sow fear, not to sow intrigue or anything like that, but to give people information and stories that are relevant to them, that tell all sides of the stories and get as close to the truth as possible. And that also question government narratives that investigate to as as best as we can, issues that have a lot of unanswered questions that are, you know, corruption issues and accountability, all of the hard stuff that a lot of us miss and, um, nowadays in terms of, of news coverage. So I think that despite what happened, it cannot stop us from holding institutions accountable because I think it's an expression of love for our community. That because we are there going, uh, asking questions to the police, it's because we care about the safety and security of our communities. And we care about the development of, of the police force in our, you know, in our region, that they are doing things that are keeping our public safe and not the reverse. That as we move into the future, that we are progressing into a more safe, secure and prosperous community. I think we need to do it because we love our community and we love our country. So journalism as an expression of our love for our community. Thank you for that, Ryan. Lorraine, do you want to cap it um, off? Yeah, for me, I've been taught since college, Nona, to always put our safety into consideration, even though a story is important for us. So yeah, we always have to be strategic and keep into balance our safety as journalists and the importance of releasing the story. But again, if you back down in the face of intimidation, you're actually giving them what they want and depriving the people of vital information they need. And you're also setting a precedent not only for your fellow journalists, but to regular civilians as well. If they were able to do that to me, a journalist under an internationally recognized news media company in front of two dignified NUPL lawyers, who know my rights and who can tell which violations are which, what is to stop them from doing that and more without anyone watching? So it's our job as journalists to, as much as possible, always be around, to always reach out, because how much of this will be swept under the rug if no one is around to watch and to write about it? So yeah, that's that. Standing guard for the truth. Even if sometimes we are the victims of the, these violent and these harassing truths. Lorena Karma and Ryan Macasero are brave, brave journalists from our Cebu Bureau. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Rambo. This has been Criminal. If you'd like to be updated on this and other issues, don't forget to follow Rappler and Newsbreak on Facebook and Twitter. And if you have suggestions about topics we should cover in this podcast, just send me a message. My inbox is open on Twitter at Rambo Reports. I'm Rambo Talapo. Thank you for listening. Subscribe and listen to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>